0: Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to both Dana and my favorite musical of all time, Singing in the Rain, starring Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, and Donald O'Connor. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be covering Dana's second selection to start season two, A Night at the Opera, starring the Marx Brothers. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that in the episode descriptions of every episode, we put links to take you right to either the notes for that specific episode or to the full ranked and graded list of every movie we've covered so far. Just open up the episode and you can find them right there to get more information on the show. Then, as we announced in the preview episode, we are taking the month of March this year to do another full trilogy, and you can help us decide. We're going to be putting up a Twitter poll on our profile, at Podcast to pick between four favorite franchises to cover this March. You can pick between the Jason Bourne Trilogy, the Austin Powers Trilogy, the Naked Gun Trilogy, or the Oceans Trilogy. If you don't have Twitter but would like to participate, please write us at GreatestAllTimeMoviePodcast at gmail.com with your vote. And as always, please follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. All right, Dad, Season 3. Did you ever imagine Episode 97 or a Season 3?
1: No, not really at all. I mean, it just seemed like when we started this, we had no idea what we were doing and what we were trying to do or where we were going. And I figured if we could do 10, I'd be surprised.
0: Well, it's really not that different from today. I still don't think we completely know what we're doing. We just kind of figure it out as we go along. Eh,
1: well, part of uh, life is just showing up.
0: I suppose that's true. So let's talk about Singing in the Rain. I don't really remember my relationship to this movie at all. The first memory I have of this, and this is going to seem really strange, was I refused to basically go to sleep. I was in the same hotel room with you and mom while we were taking our trip to South Dakota when I was eight, nine, something like that. Yeah, I think it was uh, 1999, summer of 1999, or maybe it was 98. I still can't remember. Either way, you guys were watching this movie. I was supposed to be going to sleep. I kept trying to sneak and basically put the covers in a position where I could watch the movie with you. <laughs> and I was not entirely successful. I think it was years later that I actually finally watched this in its full capacity. But i that's really my first memory of anything about this movie, with the other exception being that I guess my kindergarten class, or maybe it was my fifth grade class, one of the two, ended up doing a production of... This and put on a happy face for some type of school play or showing or something else. I don't know if it was like for a kindergarten graduation, something to that variety. So I remember singing, singing in the rain back when I was much younger in grade school as well. So I have some odd places and connections to this movie. But for you, what's your relationship?
1: It's a film that my dad liked. I think I watched it with him when it was on, probably in the early 70s. I didn't see it again for quite some time. I think I watched it early on with your mother, back when AMC first was on uh, cable and actually showed movies. And uh, then, uh, you know, as you said, when she and I were watching it in a hotel while you guys were sleeping, you actually watched it about three years later in full because we ended up watching it in New Orleans on vacation with Malta, our German exchange son. And Ma- that's why one I of I don't this- remember that at all. Well, this is one of Malta's favorites as a okay. result of that.
0: Yeah, I didn't know he-, he had even seen this movie, let alone that it was a favorite, so. Okay.
1: It was the infamous night of Mom and I on Bourbon Street without you guys.
0: Yeah, I didn't watch the movie with you guys at that point. Because I had gone to bed. He was the only one up at that point because he was finishing out the basketball game. I think I was just dead tired. That was the same year as the Kobe versus the Pistons or Kobe and Shaq their last year together versus the Pistons and losing in the finals with uh, Carl Malone and Gary Payton, that super loaded Lakers team that everybody thought would cruise to the championship and Larry Brown and the Pistons that year. So, yeah, I guess the odd things we remember. Even so, I am a little bit surprised that your dad liked this movie. I just don't take him for much of a musicals fan.
1: He had somewhat of a, an eclectic taste. It's not like he's going to be humming along, or it, it's just a, a good story. So you just remember that my dad was born in 1940, so this film was 52, I believe. So he would have been about 12. So it would have been just old enough to start really appreciating women, girls, relationships, that whole thing. Maybe the art aspect of it was a little more, maybe it had some meaning of a film he went and saw when he was in the theater and such. But I just remember that aspect. It's not like he was going, oh, this is my favorite film. But there were certain films when they would come on, he would find a way to watch them. Not make a big production out of it, but would watch them.
0: Now, this is a question I have no idea what the answer is going to be, but I'm curious. Was Grandpa a whistler? No. Yeah, it, it wouldn't strike me as a guy who had like an earworm that he couldn't get rid of at any point
1: in the day. No, and uh, he, he didn't sing. He, he liked country music. Uh, he loved Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, that group. He was a big fan of every Sunday afternoon or early Sunday evening watching Hee Haw, stuff like that. That was the extent of his musical repertoire. Is Hee Haw even music? Well, there was music. I mean, after all, how many times have you watched Family Guy where they are introducing Conway Twitty singing on Hee Haw?
0: I think they only did that for three episodes. And the... (laughs) I just got annoyed after about 30 seconds because the whole joke was, is he's going to come on. But why do you need to continue for like three minutes of an episode listening to Connoy Twitty? I
1: well, he had some good songs, but... Sure.
0: Okay. So then with regard to this movie, is this the best movie musical of all time?
1: From a standpoint of pure entertainment, the dancing and choreography... I know that there's going to be some people who believe an American in Paris is going to be better or maybe no, that's not more- the one
0: that comes to my mind immediately It's sound of music I think it'd be the bigger argument
1: <laughs> I don't consider the sound of music to be a musical because there wasn't really technically a lot of dancing and uh, the, the spectacle of a musical.
0: I I think I need to cut that clip alone and just send that to my sisters and my mother, and they would absolutely,
1: like, kick you out of the house. Oh, well, feel free, because just remember this. I happened to run into it while I was doing some research today. Gene Kelly was offered the job of directing The Sound of Music. He politely asked the producer to get out of his house because he is not directing this shit.
0: I think there are some quibbles I would have with the subject material of the movie but I think as far as a classicness and what people hold dear as a musical it is by far something that could be deemed a musical not every musical has to have dancing I I think that's actually a misnomer of such uh, that you've placed on whatever a musical should be because I don't think anybody considers dancing as part of a musical otherwise what is it step up to the streets is somehow a
1: musical (laughs) It's a different ilk
0: Okay Yeah, let's not even go there
1: Anyway, from the From the grand uh, Era, the musical Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire That whole group Yes, I think this is the greatest musical
0: I think you could put In the conversation something like The original West Side Story is held in Dear Company I personally love the old music man from 1960 as well. I
1: Robert think Preston. that
0: you could put maybe that there's really a huge era of movie musicals from about 1951 through about 1967, where you have a, enough of them that win Best Picture. We already discussed My Fair Lady on this show, Sound of Music. Oliver was, I think, the last true musical to Oklahoma win Oklahoma
1: State Fair.
0: Correct you had gigi was in there i'm trying to think of some of the other big ones of the time but you already mentioned an american in paris that was the 1951 uh, best picture winner as well so there are a ton of different musicals that kind of define this 15 to 20 year stretch that i think that this was probably overlooked at the time but has since grown in stature as we have with a lot of our movies on the list and I think this isn't necessarily one that a lot of people know offhand. It it doesn't have the immediate name recognition of a lot of the other greatest films. If you bring up a greatest films list, it doesn't have the gravitas of a Jaws or a Godfather. But I think anybody that's seen this loves the movie. And I think that's really its staying power is for the people that have watched and enjoyed this. I don't think that there's usually very many bad words to say about it.
1: I would agree. I think I think it, it's, it's getting some people over the hump of sitting down and watching it.
0: Well, and some people just simply object to musicals outright. And to those people, I don't even want to know you. Anyway, <laughs> shall we get started with the rest of the background of this movie? Do you sure. have a plot summary for us?
1: I do. Don Lockwood, Gene Kelly is a popular silent film star who barely tolerates his vain, spoiled, conniving, and shallow-leading lady, Lena Lamont, Jean Hagen. Though their studio, Monumental Pictures, links them romantically to increase their popularity, Lena is convinced that they are truly in love, despite Don's protestations otherwise. At the premiere of their latest film, The Royal Rascal, Don is forced to escape his adoring fans and jumps into a passing car driven by Kathy Selden, Debbie Reynolds. She drops Don off, but not before claiming to be a stage actress and sneering at his undignified accomplishments as a movie star. Later, at an after-party to Don's amusement, Kathy pops out of a mop cake right in front of him, revealing herself to be a chorus girl. Furious at Don's teasing, she throws a cake at him, accidentally hitting Lena in the face and then flees. Don becomes smitten with Kathy, and a budding romance starts. After their rival studio, Warner Brothers, has an enormous hit with its first talking picture, the 1927 film The Jazz Singer, the studio head, Millard Mitchell, decides he has no choice but to convert the next Lockwood and Lamont film, The Dueling Cavalier, into a talkie. But the initial preview screening is a disaster. Don and Kathy, aided by Don's musical sidekick, Cosmo Brown, Donald O'Connor, set out to try to save the movie and their careers. Will they succeed, or will Lockwood and Lamont be yet more silent film stars sent to the dustbin of history?
0: Thank you. Cast for this movie, Gene Kelly as Donald Don Lockwood, Debbie Reynolds as Kathy Seldon, Donald O'Connor as Cosmo Brown, Gene Hagen as Lena Lamont, Millard Mitchell as R.F. Simpson, Douglas Fowley as Roscoe Dexter, Rita Moreno as Zelda Zanders. Recognition for this movie, Singing in the Rain was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Gene Hagen and Best Score, winning neither. In 1998, it made AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies as the number 10 movie on its list. In 2000, AFI's 100 Years 100 Laughs named it the number 16 movie. 2002, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions named it the 16th best movie. 2003, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains nominated Lena Lamont as a villain. 2004, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs named Good Morning, number 72, Make em Laugh, number 49, and Singing in the Rain, number 3. The 2005 AFI 100 Year, 100 Movie Quotes list had Lena Lamont, What do they think I am? Dumb or something? Why, I make more money than Calvin Coolidge. Put together as a nominee. 2006, AFI's greatest movie musicals, this was number one. In 2007, AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition, this was named the number five movie of all time. In 2005, the British Film Institute included it in its list of the 50 films to be seen by the age of 14, In 2008, Empire Magazine ranked it as the 8th best film of all time. In Sound and Sight Magazine's 2012 list of the 50 greatest movies of all time, Singin' in the Rain placed 20th. And in 1989, Singin' in the Rain was one of the first 25 films selected by the United States Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry. Did you know? In the sequence in which Gene Kelly dances and sings the title song while spinning an umbrella, Splashing through puddles and getting soaked with rain, Kelly was sick with a 103 degree fever, 39 degrees Celsius. The water used in the scene caused Kelly's wool suit to shrink during filming. Did you know? A common myth is that Kelly managed to perform the entire song in one take thanks to cameras placed at predetermined locations. However, this was not the case. Filming the sequence took 2 to 3 days. Did you know? Another myth is that the rain was mixed with milk in order for the drop to show up better on camera. But the desired visual effect was produced, albeit with difficulty, through backlighting. Did you know? Debbie Reynolds was not a dancer when she made Singing in the Rain. Her background was as a gymnast. Kelly apparently insulted her for her lack of dance experience, upsetting her. In a subsequent encounter, when Fred Astaire was in the studio, he found Reynolds crying under a piano. Hearing what had happened... Astaire volunteered to help her with her dancing. Kelly later admitted that he had not been kind to Reynolds and was surprised that she was willing to talk to him afterwards. Did you know? After shooting the good morning routine, which had taken from 8 a.m. until 11 p.m. to shoot, Reynolds' feet were bleeding. Years later, she was quoted as saying that singing in the rain and childbirth were the two hardest things I ever had to do in my life. All right, with that, let's take a quick break and we will be right back. All right, Dad, let's start with what is the elevator pitch or what is this movie about?
1: Let's make a musical about the transition from silent to talking pictures.
0: I had at the advent of the talking picture, silent movie stars try to reinvent their careers when they are forced to discover their voices. Sure. Pretty good. I actually thought that was one of my better ones, to be honest. I can agree.
1: So best performance for you? Gene Kelly. I agree. I mean, I love Donald O'Connor, and I'll tell you right now, that's my second best performance. I, I almost give him one A and one B, <laughs> simply because I think Donald O'Connor is funny, he's bright, he is the comic relief in the, in the movie. I loved him. But Gene Kelly just dominates the screen. He fills it. He, he's just a likable person throughout the film, and he's somebody you root for throughout the film.
0: I think that for the most part, and this is, I agreed with both of your assessments. I have Kelly as my number one. I have O'Connor as my secondary. So I'll get to O'Connor here in a second. But the reason why I went with Kelly primarily as the number one is just the degree of difficulty and the amount of things that he's doing. And this is coming off the back where he won, I think, a specialty Oscar for An American in Paris. I don't think he was nominated for Best Actor or anything else like that. I think he had to win some type of specialty or honorary Oscar in order to get one, which is kind of telling of what the Oscars are, because I don't think they were capable of handling somebody of his talent or the amount of things that he did in a movie. I mean, we were talking about it while we were watching this over the weekend because it was New Year's and I was up for the weekend. But the tight spaces that are in this movie and the choreography to be able to pull that off consistently over and over and over again, I just found fascinating. And every time I watch it, I still just have a sheer appreciation just for the technical difficulty that it must take and how effortless he makes everything look. But then to top it off with this just genuine charisma that seems to pop out of everywhere, you could very much envision this man being a likable movie star that would be a song and dance man of almost any era. And I think that's, for me, what makes the movie, because you have to buy into his character as this everyman yet budding Hollywood star that uh, you could definitely see popping out of the screen.
1: I agree with everything you've said. Uh, There's just something about Gene Kelly. And it's not just his singing and it's not just his dancing, but there's just a presence that he just exudes a likability that just seems to, I guess it's the best word would be charisma, that just the camera picks it up so well. And you do like him. I've seen things that he has at times been kind of, Considered a little bit of a tyrant and such, but you don't get that feeling by looking at him or watching him perform on stage or on camera.
0: As far as Donald O'Connor, I don't know if I would put him 1B, but here's where I'll give him his due. Yes, to a degree, I think there are more scenes, and Don, or excuse me, Lockwood is more of a central character to this whole story. I think he's just in the movie more. And that's why, for me, I think ultimately you you give it the best performance, because I don't think there's a scene without him in it, really, save for maybe a few small pieces like the the scene in R.F. Simpson's office with Lena near the end. But for the most part, he's in almost every scene that we have. Cosmo's there to be the comic relief at times, and he does it very well. But the other thing to me is, and this is where we've talked about it on multiple occasions, I give credit because for as much as we said Gene Kelly is a hugely charismatic star that you could buy into at any time, I didn't really feel as if Donald O'Connor was acted off the screen by Gene Kelly. I, I thought for the most part, every scene that they had together and where they were supposed to be best friends and partners and that they needed each other, I felt that they were equals as opposed to Don being the more charismatic type. I thought that even in the one scene that I know that you're going to absolutely fawn over with O'Connor, he not only held his own, but he exceeded. And he got his own recognition for the degree of difficulty of that scene. So for me, I don't necessarily see them as equal parts, but I do see them in when they were on screen together as being up to the same equal challenge or the same capability.
1: Okay. I, and when I say one A and a one B, I don't mean that they were equal within the film. I'm, I'm ranking them based on their performance in general. And I don't mince this. Part of Donald O'Connor's character was to be the smart ass. He's constantly needling Lena. He's constantly made, poking fun. He's pointing out the absurdity of things, but he does it in a way that's kind of with a wry smile, and he does it in a likable manner. Uh, A character that's constantly picking at things like that could come across rather dark and irritating at times if you don't portray it the correct way. He did it in a light way that... There's something just about his facial expressions, his blue-gray eyes that seem to always express kind of a laugh, even when he's leveling an insult, that I thought there aren't too many actors, comedians, song and dance men who can do it quite as well.
0: Well, to be fair, I think a lot of that has to do with the writing. None of his quips seem mean-spirited except at Lena, at which point we've established her character to be this egotistical Delusional character who thinks of herself as a star and in reality has really no claim to be other than looking pretty and outside of that once you've established that character anything is in bounds for her because of the delusionality that she endures and basically presses on everyone else to share in her delusions or at least placate them so I'm going to make a guess. And this is just a guess, but I'm pretty sure I know where you went with Charismatic. It's Debbie Reynolds, isn't it?
1: No, actually, it was not.
0: Oh, well, that's where I went with mine. But I'll let you go first.
1: <laughs> I went with Gene Hagen simply because you you just almost love to hate her.
0: Yes, absolutely. She is so ridiculously obnoxious. It's like if, and I, I don't know if I, I should put it this way, but I'm going to. It's like if a character from Jersey Shore popped out and became the uh, Silent Star era. She's loud. She's abrasive. She has a really thick, uh, it's almost kind of New York, New Jersey sounding accent. And nobody particularly likes her, but she's completely delusional for her own
1: (laughs) grandeur. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty much why I went with her, simply because from the 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 voice to the accent to the presentation, just to her plain uh, vanity, she did a very very good job. And every scene she was in, you were drawn to her, usually because of loathing, but you were still drawn to her, and that's charismatic.
0: I'm not sure if we were drawn to her so much as she wouldn't let you look any other way.
1: <laughs> well, maybe that's part of charisma, is, is your ability to command people to pay attention to you.
0: Well, by that extension, then Donald Trump is one of the most charismatic people that we've ever had.
1: I would probably agree.
0: Oh, God. out yeah. of world. I'm truly surprised. For as much as you often put the leading ladies in this category, I thought for sure Demi Reynolds would be on it. And there are some parts where... I didn't think her acting was particularly reflective of the same degree of competency as her co-stars or male co-stars. I thought her fake laugh when Don tears his jacket in the car is just kind of off-putting a little bit. But that being said, there are just some certain qualities of the girl next door that she portrays that get me every time and still make me buy into the film. Because of course, why would you not be enchanted with her the same way that Don is and her ability to kind of be the supporting character to just about everybody else that props up his ego more or less behind every great man. There's a great woman. It's somebody there to basically stroke your ego when it takes any hits.
1: Well, the problem I had with Debbie Reynolds in this film was that I thought her performance was rather flat. There wasn't a lot of emotional aspect of it. She didn't really pop off the screen. Um, And really, the only time she was intricate or an intricate part of the film was when the other characters were playing off of her. And she didn't have a very commanding presence by herself. That's just my opinion. So that's why I couldn't go with charismatic because I didn't find her charismatic. In fact, I thought her to be rather flat. All
0: right. Uh, Okay. Let's move to best scene. Then I'll just read you the nominees that I put down. I think I have, let's see here. 10. First up, I have the Royal Rascal premiere. Then Don drops in the first talking picture. Make them laugh. Moses, his toeses. Good morning. Singing in the rain. Lena finds out. Got a dance, and the dancing cavalier premiere. I know that's a lot of scenes for. I can't remember how long the runtime of this, but I swear it's not more than like ninety minutes.
1: Oh, it's it's two hours. Is it two hours? It doesn't it's feel two like hours two hours and two minutes. It really does not feel like two hours pretty sure because I remember watching that when it came on we were discussing, you know, I'll oh, we'll start it and see how far we get and whatever. And I was kind of paying attention to how much time was going to take. It's an
0: hour and 43, kind of halfway between you and I. Even so, it still doesn't feel like it's an hour and 43. It feels very tight. They, they move a lot of places. The only place that I, I think it kind of drags a little bit is the Broadway melody thing that they do. So out of these, what do you think is the best scene?
1: To me, I've got to go with Gene Kelly and uh, singing in the rain. It's the one that I have the most memory of. It's the one that I sing. I mean, there isn't usually a time when I'm in a rainstorm that I don't start singing, singing in the rain. And that's just why it's had that much impact on me. I
0: think from a technical standpoint the amount of things going on in that scene from a design perspective, from a choreography perspective, it's really the biggest number in the entire show. I'm going to go with got to dance or the Broadway melody reference here, just because the color scheme for the whole part of that. And yes, it's an aside, but then you have Gene Kelly doing this gigantic dance production. You've got so many extras involved in that scene. And just from, all of the things that have to go into it. I think I'll make that the best one just because I'd like to highlight that as a an additional scene. I'm going to get to several of the other ones as we kind of go along here. Favorite scene. For me, it's Good Morning. It's hard. There are several scenes that I really love out of this one. But for whatever reason, this has always been one of my favorites and I really wish that you guys hadn't constantly screwed up the good morning song with whatever that weird farmer one is that you guys constantly <laughs> use. Cause this is a much better version and the interplay between O'Connor and Kelly and Reynolds and just their dancing up and down the stairway through the house. I, I just find it enticing and I
1: could rewatch that almost on a loop. Favorite scene for you. Make them laugh. I have been fascinated by Donald O'Connor and that scene since I saw it for the first time. And every time I see it, I'm just utterly amazed. I don't know how a human being can do that and do it to music and do it in time and make it look like that. Now, I I did note that when I was doing my research for the show, apparently Donald O'Connor was an avid smoker and was uh, at that time smoking four packs of cigarettes a day. And the exertion required for him to do that scene, he ended up in the hospital with some sort of an acute bronchial problem for about three days because of the just the physical drain that it put on him with uh, that much nicotine in his system. But I just am a- always fascinated by that scene. And I could watch that scene once a week and not get tired of it.
0: I would agree. That's where we do have this category for when we do musicals. Best song for me is Make Him Laugh. I agree with you. I don't think I have much to add on that subject. I do love the song. I love his performance in it. And just from the degree of facial expressions to the running up and down the sets to climbing and going into different, Places all over. I'm not sure if that's a one take or not. If it's not, it's great editing. If it is a one take, I mean, holy cow. So, (laughs) yeah, it's an extraordinary scene by itself, but I'll go with it for best song here, just because I have my most indelible as as something else. So we'll highlight four different things for me.
1: Best song for you? The scene of Make Them Laugh is what my favorite is. To me, Singing in the Rain is still my favorite song in the film. I just love the song. It's just the epitome of being young or younger and in love and how nothing really bothers you. Singing in the Rain is not a problem. I'm in love, and it doesn't matter. This is just, you know, this is great because my the love I have over exceeds any discomfort or any bizarre nature of me being wet or uncomfortable. And it just comes out that way. It's romance to me.
0: And that is my most indelible. I think that it is by far the thing. If you've seen this movie, you know exactly what this scene is. You know, the famous picture of Don Lockwood up on the lamppost swinging around with his umbrella and all of the choreography splashing in the puddles kicking the water that goes on in this scene, I think by far this is easily the most indelible thing that we've had uh, in this movie. Agreed. Is that your most indelible too? Oh, yes, because, again... I don't know if you could go with anything
1: else. I know. I I mean, like I said, (laughs) I just caught myself a couple weeks ago in the rain doing it again, singing the song and splashing around in the puddles.
0: I hope you were wearing galoshes. Or at least had waterproof shoes.
1: Uh, no. I did have on a slucker though.
0: Nobody's called it that since about 1960. Yeah.
1: Anyway, uh, let's
0: take another quick break here, and uh, we'll be back for a uh, unfortunately long in-memoriam section. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, Dad. Unfortunately, we lost quite a few people, but who are the people we need to remember this week as we come back for season three?
1: Well, like I said, a lot of the uh, we have a larger group of celebrities. Kind of every time we get around the the holidays at the end of the year, we had Harvey Evans, who is was a uh, eighty, he was an American actor. He was in West Side Story, Bank Shot, Enchanted. Harry Columby, he was a uh, talent agent and screenwriter. Uh, he was uh, the talent or the manager of Michael Keaton and a screenwriter. He wrote Michael Keaton's film uh, Johnny Dangerously, and he wore, wrote Working Stiffs. Uh, John Bowman, 64, he was an American television writer. He wrote for Martin, Saturday Night Live, and In Living Color. John Madden, who was a Hall of Fame football coach and sports broadcaster, as well as the video game founder. Uh, I put him in because he's done several cameos in films and on television and such. Still a very important con- or contributor to television and, and uh, the entertainment field. Uh, Janine Ann Roos, uh, an American actress. She played little uh, Violet Biggs in It's a Wonderful Life. She was 84. Jay Wolport. He was an American television producer. He did The Price is Right. He was a screenwriter. He wrote The Pirates of the Caribbean and The Count of Monte Cristo. Joan Copeland, an American actress, primarily from television, but she did Search for Tomorrow, Law and Order, The Peacemaker. And then, of course, unfortunately, Betty White, American actress, comedian, Golden Girls, Mary Tyler Moore show, Hot in Cleveland, five-time Emmy winner. Apparently, uh, the last word she said upon her death was Alan, Alan Ludden, her uh, husband who predeceased her by 40 years. Um, and she's going to be buried next to him in uh, Mineral Point, Wisconsin.
0: Yeah, certainly some big losses. And I don't think we'll be done with, unfortunately, this list as we kind of cross into January. As I've said the last few weeks, even before we took our small hiatus for the holidays that often we have a lot of people pass away around or right after the holidays because I think there's a mystique about trying to be there for Christmas, surviving through another Christmas, being with family, and then after you've kind of survived that, then you kind of let let up a little bit, especially if you're ill or older or whatever else. It, it unfortunately claims a lot of people during this time of the year But certainly, uh, I think we have quite a few of these people that we have some deep-rooted connections towards. I I obviously have been playing the Madden game since I think about 2003, 2004, back when Madden actually was the sports broadcaster still on the game. He hasn't been for about 10, 15 years at this point, basically since he left broadcasting permanently. But he has been a giant influence in media and sports television and how sports broadcasters have been portrayed for years and years and years now in film, TV. There are a lot of copycats, but there's only one John Madden. And certainly his influence is widespread through the sports community. And I'm sure uh, some of the movies that we're going to be discussing when it comes to Sports Movie Month later on in the season have some direct connection to John Madden's presence and his entertainment involvement over the last, I don't know, 40 years. That being said, obviously the big one that I think everybody was kind of in a little bit of shock by because it didn't seem like anything was going to kill her was Betty White to be 99. And I think she hosted Saturday Night Live for the first time at 88. So, I mean, it's extraordinary the level of career and popularity and just widespread celebrity that she had for, I don't know if she was bigger during her time in a lot of these shows and movies and TV and whatever else as she was almost in her late stages of life. But she had a certain universality that seemed to be likable to just about everybody. I don't know what made her cross cut against so many generations that she was just beloved, but for whatever reason, she connected with the American public and kind of almost despite the fact that I swear she probably was never on the internet, was somewhat of a viral sensation for the last 15 years that I don't know if we'll ever have that again.
1: It's going to be limited. Yeah, It's, it, it's possible, but not likely.
0: So for all of these people that we have lost
1: recently, we take a moment of silence here in their memory and thank them for their work. Thank you. All right, Dad. Best Funniest Lines. Not a ton of lines for this one. This is actually
0: a bigger songs movie, but for the most part, I think with the exception of the one big line that was nominated by the AFI, this is primarily a movie defined by quippy lines by Cosmo. Do you want to take the first one up?
1: R.F. Simpson, studio hit. Cosmo, remind me to give you a raise. Cosmo. uh, R.F., yes? Uh, Give me a raise.
0: Cosmo, talking pictures, that means I'm out of a job. At last, I can start suffering and write that symphony. RF, you're not out of a job, we're putting you in as head of our new music department. Oh, thanks, RF, at last I can stop suffering and write that symphony.
1: <laughs> dignity, always dignity, Don Lockwood.
0: Cosmo, Lena, she can't act, she can't sing, she can't dance, a triple threat.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, Yes. Lena,
0: what do they think I am? Dumb or something? Why, I make more money than Calvin Coolidge. Put together. Let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second?
1: Oh, I'll go first. This has gained so much stature in the industry as far as a musical and being a great musical and probably the best musical. It, it's a five for industry. Unfortunately, I have to give it a step down because there's a lot of people who, they know the song, they know there's a musical, they may have seen it, it's not as prevalent in their minds as it should be. So for the public, I went with a four, simply because for those that are more apathetic, there are those who are so overwhelmingly in love with this film that it balances it out to some extent so that's why I went with a four for a total of nine
0: so I'll agree with you wholeheartedly on industry I think this has been a movie that in hindsight and in recognition I mean we talked about it I mean how many lists was that not near the top of or nominated for or probably considered one of the best movie musicals of all time by just about every critic and industry person I think it's an unequivocal five from the audience standpoint. But I agree with you. The audience share. I just don't think there are the people that are as familiar with this movie, despite our love for it. It's a 1952 movie and it is in color. So that's not as off-putting because there are enough people, even in our lives, that won't watch black and white movies. There are also a stretch of people, even in our own lives, that just don't like musicals, kind of almost in the same way that they don't, or you and I don't particularly like horror films, or you are not into science fiction fantasy. And as such, I went slightly below you. I was at a 3.5 for audience. So I ended up at an 8.5, and that makes it an 8.75 between us. Okay. Impact
1: Significance, what did you have down? For the industry, it had decent reviews, but it didn't get nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. It got only two major real Academy Award nominations, so the industry itself didn't think a whole lot of it initially. The public, it was 10th in uh, sales for the year. So it wasn't like people just went gaga over this either. It was above average for both, but still not overwhelming. So I went three for both for a six total.
0: And I'm with you on each one of those points. I really don't know if I have much to add. I think the only thing I could say is, is that maybe with your 10th, I would be willing to come up and tie you. I originally had a three for the industry on this one, pretty much for the exact same points that you had that, yes, it got nominated for a couple of technical awards. But I mean, frankly, Iron Man or the Avengers get nominated for technical awards there isn't much to say in 1952 when there weren't you know 50 movies premiering a year or I guess for that matter it's probably closer to like 80 and with streaming we're getting like 120 movies a year that are commonly known but in 1952 you had probably 60 movies maybe and 25 of them were like the ones that were really in the Oscar conversation so for it to be kind of shut out And in a year where, and we're going to get to this later, The Greatest Show on Earth ends up winning the Oscar for Best Picture. And a couple of other movies that I'm just not particularly familiar with, the original version of Moulin Rouge (laughs) and Ivanhoe. I I just don't necessarily know if this had the same impact that it would in a legacy standpoint later on. I think this is a more beloved movie in hindsight. Than it was at the time, and so I went with a three for industry. I had a two point five for audience, but I'll meet you at your six overall and uh, come up. So that's a six a piece between us, four to six average. All right, novelty. I had a seven.
1: This was kind of in a long run of Gene Kelly dance musicals, Fred Astaire movies, etc. It comes the year after uh, an American in Paris. It was really, (laughs) interestingly, what the film started as, or the screenplay. they had a bunch of songs in the uh, MGM studio, and they decided to pick out a bunch of them that they liked, write a couple more, and see if they could create some sort of vehicle to utilize all this stuff. And so this is what they came up with. So it was not really novel. It was more formulaic. It's just they did it so well so I went with a seven for novelty.
0: I do think there is an element that when you step back, you can kind of see that they're just making these really flimsy attempts to transition between stuff. But because the songs are developed so well, and even the stuff that they put in to basically transition doesn't feel off-putting. It never really bothers you, especially as you just kind of get into the film and engross yourself in it. So I think it's only from critics or people that can look through a critical eye that would even notice some of it because of, as you said, it's just done well. And I think just that essence brings a certain level of novelty to it. I agreed with your seven. I mean, this is getting almost eerie how pretty close we are again on a movie. But I mean, it was to be expected since we both love this movie. Really, for me, the only major novelty of it, other than I think that it's a exceptionally well done movie. And I've said before that novelty sometimes can be just as simple as doing something that yes, maybe not necessarily creative or have its own origin, but just doing it better than everybody else. And While I agree with you that this is the year right after an American in Paris won Best Picture, so I don't think everybody was as in on this movie and Gene Kelly as they were the year before. Some of this kind of played out like old hat. There is a sense of an originality because a lot of the movie musicals after this were defined by stage plays. Bye bye Birdie, Music Man, West Side Story, Bye Fair Lady. All of those were properties that they just basically took from Broadway, adapted to the screen and then made them into large productions. So for the fact that this is, yes, even in the early 50s, a original musical, I do have to get it, give it a little bit of credit for that. So I also ended at a 7, so the average is pretty easy. It's a 7. Classicness. It's your category.
1: I didn't find much cringeworthy. I mean, it's really well-classic. Lead characters weren't, you know, they're female, there was a certain aspect that they were a little treated more within a certain scope, lack of any diversity in the cast. So I gave it just a little bit down. The worst I could do would be a nine.
0: Okay. I certainly don't have much different to add from any of that. I don't know if I would necessarily harp on the diversity angle with this one because it's trying to be reflective of Hollywood in the 1920s and or late 20s and early 30s and realistically how many black people were in the in Hollywood in the 1920s and early 30s. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking for a diversity play, you might be looking for a couple of Hispanic people that were more or less serving everybody else, but I certainly don't think they were in the chorus or major actors. I mean, we did have Rita Moreno, at least briefly in a couple of uh, moments, but if it wasn't that Rita Moreno was Rita Moreno, I don't think we'd even really notice. So that being said, there's only one kind of slightly cringy moment for me, and it's just a slight uncomfortable playfulness between Don and Kathy when she first drops him off, and there's kind of this, back and forth about him supposedly haha forcing himself on her that I just don't think the joke plays as well in 2021 2022 as it did in 1952 but even then it's a fleeting moment that I just don't think a ton of people are gonna pick up on in the same way as somebody who's hyper aware of some of these things and has been looking for them for years. But overall, I think this is still as charming as it was to begin with. And it's still the same film every time I watch it. The songs, the tone, the story, they're all the same. And I get the same, I don't know if it's joy. It's kind of an unintangible happiness when I watch this movie. And because it happens every single time in the exact way that it should happen every single time, I deem this has to be at least a 9.5 for me. Because it's just never going to get old. Maybe it's like a a warmth in my heart is the best way to describe it or something like that. So, rewatchability, for me, it's a 10. I mean, I, I really have no problem putting this movie on ever. I enjoy introducing it to other people. I absolutely adore this movie. I'm glad anytime anybody else likes the movie, let alone it's one of their favorites. I really enjoyed introducing it to Sarah during the quarantine two years ago weird to say it's already two years ago but and uh so for me it's an absolute
1: 10 where are you at i i went back and forth and back and forth whether it's a 10 or a 9.5 and it's not a film that you can just skim through and just watch a few minutes of kind of so i cheated i went with a 9.75 it's not exactly cheating
0: i couldn't make up my mind Well, that makes the math just slightly tougher on me, but uh, I'm sure I can uh, divide that in half. So that's actually a 9.88 average between us, which I I think I'll put it in its own category uh, in comparison to every other film on the list. We had an 89% for Google users. We had a 95% for Rotten Tomato users, ending at a 9.2 overall. So let's just recap this quickly for you. We had an 8.75 for Legacy. We had a 6 for Impact Significance, 7 for Novelty, a 9.25 for Classicness, a 9.88 for Rewatchability, and a 9.2 for Audience Score, which gives us a 50.08, and that would currently place it between Aliens and American Graffiti on the list. Okay. So remaining questions then, do you have any? Was it ultimately Lockwood and Selden? I think they are they allude to that with the poster at the end of the movie, but he, that's essentially my first question that I had up. Does Kathy become a star? And then secondarily, does Lena basically fade away? I think it's the implication that you get, which is why this is hard to have had major remaining questions, but I agree with you that that's, that's the primary thing you're left with at the end. Yes. Anything else? No, not really. So I we'll open it up to the question that I kind of started to try and ask you over the weekend. And since we've reviewed every major movie I've felt from 1952, I think we both agreed that the greatest show on earth was not the best picture of 1952. So what you have instead is the quiet man, which I think currently ranks, uh, number 91 out of 93 films on our list, which will be 94. Uh, excuse me, 92 and 94 here as soon as we add this movie to the list. We have this above it and we have High Noon as the highest ranking of all of these so far. So would you agree that High Noon is the greatest and probably most deserving of Best Picture in 1952 or would you go in a different direction?
1: See, and and I know that part of the problem that you have in deciding Best Picture is, is that you're looking at it with a lens that's adjusted to that time frame. And Westerns were so popular. I, I think you'd have to go with High Noon as being the best film because it was so good and really a redefinition of the Western.
0: It's in many ways kind of the most quintessential, but also the anti-Western.
1: Yeah. John Wayne hated it. He oh, refused... I It was not John Wayne.
0: And you can certainly go back to any of our reviews on The Quiet Man, The Greatest Show on Earth, or High Noon before this movie. But I really wouldn't have a problem if anybody said this movie was the Best Picture of 1952. But since it wasn't even nominated, I'm not sure it should even be on the list of possibilities. And so based on that just criteria by itself, I'll go with High Noon as the Best Picture of 1952. And I think we'll have some more discussions on some of these ones where I think the uh, Oscars clearly got it wrong. But to me, this should have been a high noon year. But I understand the backlash due to all of the circumstances historically surrounding it. All right. So now that we have re, or excuse me, posthumously given out a new Oscar, any
1: last thoughts for the week? No, looking forward to the new year. Uh, I know that The Marx Brothers are not necessarily something a lot of our listeners are in tune with. If you don't watch the movie for next week, at least watch a Marx Brothers film of some variety. I I love Night at the Opera. I love Duck Soup. I love all of them because they're just very fun. They're well done. There's a certain element that comedy does have a tendency to age at times, but These just are classic movies, and part of what we do here is to try to encourage people to explore and find that there are movies that were created more than the last five or six years that are worth watching. So I would hope everybody gives it a chance, gives it a shot, watches the the Marx Brothers. I, I I love them. I love Groucho. The personality of Groucho on screen. Groucho was um, not really the nicest man off screen. And I absolutely love Harpo. So, but anyway. So
0: with that, I don't have any major remaining thoughts. Although I will add, if you're really not sure about watching a Marx Brothers film, you can probably find some of their more classic scenes probably on YouTube. And for this one in particular, I know we're going to mention it, as you mentioned it before, In last week's episode, The Stateroom, that one I think is probably available widely all over the place and you could easily be able to follow that even if you don't want to spend the hour and 31 minutes. But for the most part, most of the Marx Brothers films are 90 minutes or less and they're easily viewable. I don't know if they're available to stream too many places at the moment. You may have to rent them, but it's worth the two, three bucks that you're going to pay because honestly, the humor and the comedy actually hold up pretty well all things considered i think that the sarcasm and the quippiness and this is coming from an absolute comedy snob i still think that this actually has some really good comedy roots and you could probably see a lot of through lines to current comedy uh even today so looking ahead to that one uh as well as you where are you headed cowboy nowhere special nowhere special i always wanted to go there Next week, we will be covering Dana's second selection to start season two, A Night at the Opera, starring the Marx Brothers. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at gmodepodcast, or find us on Twitter at gmodepodcast.